0: I think this is going to be good, but my computer crashed on Friday night at 10 p.m. You know how that happens? You see the little virus happening and all these windows start popping up, and you're going, no, no, off, on, off, on. So I think I I have most of it back for us this morning. Um, Don't forget that a month from now, we're doing a big joint service with everybody at Seven Mile Road, and we are baptizing those of you who have come to faith in Jesus in this last stretch in the life of our church. So if that is you and you have not yet been baptized into the triune name of God, be letting us know that um, and we'll be connecting with you about getting ready to take the plunge or be plunged or however we pull this off in this round of doing that. That's about a month from today, the last Sunday of June. We'll all be together and there'll be a whole bunch of good Seven Mile Road stuff going on. All right, delight to, when there's only like 45 of us, you hear every sniffle and burp and dropping of coins, so you better be ready to listen quietly today. All right, uh, delight to be preaching t- to you today, a text that you're familiar with, but um, also may not be familiar with at the same time, so I'm anxious to, to bring this to you guys today. All right, let me start here. My mom is Puerto Rican, I know that comes as a great shock and surprise to you when you look at my white, red face, but she is. uh, She just married a German-English guy who she met in the 60s when she was 18 and he was 25, and he had long blonde hair and a red bandana and was the coolest thing she had ever seen, and somehow they're still married, Uh, and they had two gringo-looking boys, but being that my mom is Puerto Rican, she's fluent in Spanish, however... She never taught us Spanish because she was from the generation that said, if we're going to live in these United States, we're going to speak English. And so it was English only in our household except for one scenario. And that was the scenario when my mom wanted to talk with her mom or one of her sisters or Puerto Rican friends without James and I knowing what it was that she was saying she was probably talking about us. And so all of a sudden, she would bust out the Spanish. Mírate, no me gusto la novia nueva de mateo, esta loca. We have one Spanish speaker in the house, alright, kid. And and things like that. What was she doing when she did that? She was finding a way to keep meaning hidden from me, and she was changing the language that she was speaking it. Now How do we do that? How do we get that same effect, but without changing languages? If you want to keep what you're saying hidden from someone while saying it to them in a language that they don't understand, what do you do? Well, you would speak in riddles. Um, You would talk in a way that they can hear the words that you're saying, but not understand the meaning. All right. The Hobbit is going to hit theaters this Christmas. This is the one movie that the cruise kids are going to get to see in the theater. They can't wait, and it's only May. If you haven't read the book, there's this scene, dark scene, where Bilbo Baggins, the Hobbit, tumbles down into the cave of this evil, wicked creature, Gollum. And Gollum wants to kill and to eat Bilbo. And before he does, he challenges him to a contest, a riddle contest. And he tells him that if Bilbo can win the contest of riddles, he'll show him the secret passage out. But if Gollum wins the contest, then he's going to destroy Bilbo. And so Gollum speaks to Bilbo in riddles, on purpose, so that Bilbo will not understand and will end up destroyed. You feel that? His motivation is Bilbo's harm, And so he speaks in a way that hides and obscures and veils his meaning. Now, we expect that from Gollum. But that is not something that Jesus would do, is it? All right, that's what we're going to deal with today, preaching from the parable of the seed and the sower and the soil. I just want to read you the middle section of that text again, and we'll pray. When Jesus was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And Jesus said to them, To you has been given the secret or the mystery of the kingdom, but for those outside, everything's in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive. They may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that your spirit would be here. We're trying to walk with you as if you're right here with us and in us and among us by faith. And so, like little children, like these disciples, we come asking you, Father, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the spirit, help our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to leap the way that they should from this text today. Hear that prayer that you've heard this week and answer our prayer. Amen. Okay, we are preaching. It must be hot. This thing's starting to slide now. on me. We are preaching this year through the gospel of Mark. And one of the things that Mark has told you guys is that Jesus was a preacher. But one of the things that Mark hasn't done is give you a whole lot of the actual content of Jesus' teaching. He only gives us two big blocks of his teaching, unlike Luke and Matthew and John, who give us a ton of it. One big block here in Mark chapter 4, he tells us some of the parables that Jesus taught. And then one big crazy block in Mark chapter 13, which we'll get to an apocalyptic discourse of his about the fall of Jerusalem and the end of the ages. We're going to sit in this text. Here's what's going on Jesus is a teacher. There's so many people coming to hear him that he gets pushed from the city into the suburbs, into the rural areas down by the water, down by the sea, onto the sand, and into a boat. It's such a crowd that he has to sit in a boat just to have enough distance to have room to be able to teach. Don't forget we're talking about a real person here, right? A real guy, a real boat, a real city, real people, real time. If you would like to, you can go to the Sea of Galilee. They call it the Bay of Parables. You can stand, they've tested this, someone can stand by the shore and just speak in a strong voice, and it carries, and thousands of people can hear. Come with me back to this real scene of Jesus teaching. There's probably thousands of people here, I mean a massive crowd. Mark says everyone is there, and remember who Mark means by everyone. He means the opponents are there, the ones who are fighting tooth and nail against Jesus. The crowds are there. That's his term for those who are neutral, and they're just there to check out the show, see if there'll be some more healings. And then disciples are there, the 12 and others. These are the ones who are really serious about following Jesus and embracing his teaching and his gospel. You hear that? Everybody is there. Okay. Now imagine if you're sitting in that big crowd and that mixed multitude And Rabbi Jesus is about to teach. What are you expecting? Well, just like any other speaker or performer or preacher, Jesus did his thing in a specific way. So let's say you were going to go check out a Tony Bennett concert. What would you expect to happen? What's going to go down? They're going to wheel this guy out in a wheelchair, and they're going to prop him up, and he's going to have his oxygen tank, and he's going to have a piano and a jazz drummer and an upright bass, and he's gonna sing a bunch of songs about Italy in rapid fire and drop some jokes and then get wheeled back into the nursing home. That's what's gonna happen when you go hear Tony Bennett. What if you went to hear a heavy metal band? It's gonna be loud, it's gonna be crazy, there's gonna be piercings and tattoos and tongues stuck out and your ears are gonna be rocking. You know to expect that. What if you went to a Rascal Flats concert? If you go to this church, you should have no idea the answer to that question. I don't know. I I don't know what to expect because I would never do that. You know what's coming. It's the same thing with preachers, right? So like the famous Americana preachers in our day, if Rob Bell stood up to preach, what do you know is coming? Shrug shoulders and questions. That's how he preaches. If Mark Driscoll was coming to preach, how would he do it? He'd be yelling at you. If Tim Keller came to speak, how would he do it? He stands up really straight and tall. He's about 6'5". He would use words that we didn't really quite understand, and he would quote a million authors. If John Piper came to preach, what's definitely going to happen? He's going to grab the pulpit like this. He's not going to move, and he's going to use a thousand-word sentences that all end in an exclamation point. When Joey Thompson preaches, what do you know is going to happen? He's going to burn this little thing in the wood right up here, back and forth. You know what's coming, okay? Jesus was the same way. When you came to hear Jesus, you knew what was coming. And maybe you think he would be soft-spoken or long-winded or really interesting. But whatever the case, you would expect Jesus to speak as plainly as possible. Wouldn't you? To say things in a way that just gives everyone in the audience a really good chance of responding rightly. That he wouldn't use riddles. That he wouldn't use word games. That he wouldn't be coy. I think you would expect Jesus to be helpful and simple and clear and plain. But what you get is exactly the opposite in this text. The staple of Jesus' preaching for a good portion of his ministry was parables. And especially this part of the ministry that Mark is revealing to us early. You go to hear Jesus and you know what you're going to get. A rabbi will be seated and he will be speaking in parables. That was Jesus' preferred form of public teaching. Nobody in the ancient world did it quite like Jesus did. You can go check this out. The quantity and the excellence of Jesus' parables were unmatched. They've been unmatched since Jesus owned parables. Now, what are we talking about when we say parables? The word literally means to place something next to something else in order to shed light on it or to compare the two things. Uh, it's something like a complex and extended simile. This here is like that over there. And so I'm going to tell you about that in a way that's pointing to this. You see how those two things are set beside each other? So in our parable, there's the sower and the seed and the soil, and they are set beside Jesus and the Word and the hearts of the hearers. That's a parable. Now, you can do parables in a way that makes their meaning totally plain to understand. We'll see this at the very end of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus gives the parable of the wicked tenants, and everybody knows exactly what he's talking about, that the landowner is Yahweh, the Father, that the good Son is Jesus, and that the wicked tenants are, are the scribes and the Pharisees who will put Jesus to death. He tells a parable and nobody misses his meaning. But the cool thing about parables is because you are putting one thing in the place of another, one of the things that a parable can do really, really well, if you want it to, is to hide meaning. To hint at a truth, but not to be obvious, at all to serve as a riddle that when you hear the explanation you go oh yes i get it but until that moment of explanation or revelation you're lost and so one of the reasons that you would tell parables is if you wanted to conceal the truth and that's what's happening in this text of scripture today everybody comes out to hear jesus they're expecting jesus to speak clearly Maybe he's going to call them to repentance or expound the Ten Commandments or quote from the Torah. Instead, they get stories about lamps and baskets and coins and mustard seeds and vineyards. And that's what we see today. Everybody comes to hear Jesus, they're thinking he's going to open the scriptures and preach from Exodus or Isaiah or Amos. And instead, what did they get? So there was a sower. He had a big bag full of seed and he was scattering that seed all over his property and some of that seed hit hard ground and the birds came and take it away and some of that seed hit shallow ground and it sprung up but as soon as the sun rose it scorched it and it died. Some of that seed hit cluttered soil and it grew up but so did the thorns and the thorns choked it out and it died. Some of the seed hit a really good patch of ground and there was a great harvest And then he stops, and he leaves it there, and he doesn't connect any of the dots, he doesn't mention Moses or the law or even God, he just says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And what is the effect of that parable on the listeners? It's a lot of shrugged shoulders and open hands, Uh, all right? What are we supposed to do with that? They don't know. And so the neutral crowds just kind of scratch their heads, and his opponents probably shake their heads and say, what a joker this guy is. We don't even know he's talking about sowers and seeds. Do you feel this? Jesus has taught, but no one has responded or believed because he taught in a parable. What was going on with that? Well, gladly in verse 10, the disciples ask him about it. Verse 10 said this, And when he was alone, those around him with the disciples asked him about the parables. Did you hear that? When he was alone with only the disciples around him. Okay, so don't miss this. Now this is a totally different scene. This is not in public. He is not on a boat. There are not by the masses. There are no opponents. There are no crowds. It's just Jesus and the disciples. And they say, Jesus, we don't understand. This isn't really clear. Why are you talking in parables? And what does this sower seed soil parable, what's it supposed to mean? In private, Jesus answers both of those questions for these guys. First, he answers why the parables. This is the text we've read a few times already. To you has been given the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may see me but not perceive. They may hear me but not understand or else they might turn and be forgiven. Whoa, whoa. Jesus says, when I am out there, I am doing the parable thing on purpose. I'm speaking in a way that even though I'm speaking Aramaic, they're going to hear it like it's English or Greek, not understand. And I'm doing it so that they don't perceive, so that they don't understand, so that they don't repent and don't believe. Now, are those some very hard and very unexpected words from Jesus? Yeah? They're some of the most difficult in this gospel to get our heads around, but they're really super important, so we're going to do this together. To make sense of Jesus' words, we have to go back to the prophet Isaiah. I don't know if you noticed as we've been reading through this text, but Jesus is quoting scripture in his explanation of why parables. And he quotes from what we have as the sixth chapter of Isaiah's gospel. In that text, something really similar is happening as in our text. Yahweh sends Isaiah as a prophet to speak to his people. He says, I need someone to go speak to my people. And Isaiah says, Right here, I will go. What do you want me to say? And then in his commissioning of Isaiah, the Lord says something that you would just never expect him to say. He says, Isaiah, I'm going to give you words. And when my people hear those words, they're not going to respond. Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull. Make their ears heavy and their eyes blind, lest they see with their eyes, lest they hear with their ears, lest they understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. You feel the same kind of tension in there when you hear those words? Sounds like God's acting like Gollum. Here's what's going on there. God's people had fallen into, or I should say, they have gladly, continually, willingly, persistently embraced idolatry. This was the great sin of the world around them, the nations that bordered them. Instead of remaining singular and pure and undivided in their devotion to and their worship of their covenant Lord, they made idols of wood and stone and... And gold and silver, they set them up in their holy places and they worshiped them. And this was wrong and it was crazy and it was awful and they were persistent in it. They would not stop. And one of the foundational realities of our existence as creatures who were made in the image of God is this one right here. You become just like what you worship you become just like what you worship. Now, this is supposed to be a really awesome reality because we were created in the image of a triune God and we're supposed to be exclusive in our worship of him. And as we love him and delight in him and fear him and honor him and cherish him, the way that he makes this world work is that as we worship, we are conformed to the image of the one whom we worship. This should be a delightful truth. But the problem is that we pervert that, and we trade God in for other gods. And when we do that, the principle doesn't change. We just begin to become like the other gods. Now, specifically in the Isaiah text and context, it means this. Idols have ears that cannot hear. And if you worship them, you will become spiritually deaf, just like them. And idols have eyes that cannot see. And if you worship them and cherish them and look to them to save you, you're gonna become just like them and you will not be able spiritually to see. Idols are dead and lifeless and if you devote yourself to them and worship them, you will become spiritually dead and unresponsive like a block of wood or a, a chunk of stone. And at some point, If you persist in your idolatry, you persist in your worship of other gods, you persist in your refusal to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, you will become deaf and blind and hard and you will no longer be able to respond rightly to God. This is terrifying. In other words, he will come to you and he will speak graceful words of truth and hope and promise But you will be deaf to them and they will sound like garbage to you, like ridiculousness because you cannot understand. He will show himself to you in splendor and glory and fury and majesty and you will be blind to it and you will be like, whatever, no big deal, that doesn't move me, I'd rather look at something else because your eyes can't perceive the living God will come to you and call you to repentance and faith and life and you will respond like a statue, like a mannequin, like an idol, nothing. And this is what had happened to God's people in Isaiah's day, deaf, blind, hard. And so when God sends Isaiah, he says to Isaiah, my judgment is now on my people. They refuse to cease from their idolatries. They refuse to love me and fear me. We're going to give them what they long for and what they want. They will be just like their idols. So go speak to them. But I'm going to have you use words that will leave them dead and lifeless. Isaiah, declare to them. But do it in a way that shows just how far they have fallen. Isaiah, I'm sending you not to stir up repentance They are beyond that. I'm sending you to confirm my judgment. And that's exactly what happens with Isaiah, exactly. He goes, he speaks, the people don't hear or see or respond, and exile comes. And Jesus is saying, the same thing is happening with me and my ministry. This is a wicked and adulterous and idolatrous generation. You hear Jesus say that all the time. Now the scribes and the Pharisees and the other religious representatives of the people were not bowing down to literal idols, but they had many other gods before Yahweh, as we all do. They were clinging to their tradition like it was God, hoping in it that it would save them. They were clinging to their uh, relationships and their connections with Rome and the wealth and the influence and the power as if it was God, and that would save them and keep them safe. They were clinging to their self-righteous acts as if that would save them. You feel all these other gods and their consistent, long-term, unrepentant worship of these other saviors had hardened their hearts and deafened their ears and blinded their eyes. Jesus is saying, here I am, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, I am standing before them. I am working miracles. I am healing the sick. And their eyes can't see my glory. Here I am declaring the good news of the kingdom of God. And their ears cannot hear how beautiful these words are. Here I am bringing the salvation that the prophets spoke about. And their hearts don't leap with joy. Instead, they seek my harm. And so, just like in Isaiah's day, God's judgment is on this generation. And I'm going to show that this is the case by speaking to them only in parables. He's saying, you remember how Isaiah spoke? And the only effect that it had was to harden hearts? Same thing with me and the crowds and the opponents. I'm going to speak in parables so that they have no chance of understanding to show that they have put themselves beyond a place where they can understand anymore. My parables will serve to confirm the state of their hearts. Do you guys feel that? So when we see Jesus purposely speaking in parables, it is not a mean trick that he is playing on his enemies. He's not going all Gollum the Riddler on us here in this passage. He is not saying, I I don't long for my people to turn and be forgiven. He's not hiding meaning for them like if he would just say it more plain, then they would understand and respond. No, Jesus is saying, they have shown that they refuse to repent and believe no matter what John the Baptist said, no matter what I have said, no matter what anyone says, I am exposing their unbelief by doing things in a way that ensures that they won't believe. If his opponents were to go, Jesus, I don't understand, Jesus would say, exactly, exactly, you don't understand. And the problem is that even when I did And if I continue to speak perfectly clearly to you, you're not going to understand. There's something wrong with your heart. And the parables serve to make that much plain. Okay. Now, gladly, because God is full of grace, that is not the case with everyone, right? It should be. All of our hearts should be blind and deaf and hard to the grace of God. But... By his grace, he brings hearts to life. And so there was still some in Israel whose ears were not shut, whose eyes were not blind, whose hearts were not stone. These are the disciples in the Gospel of Mark, the 12 and the others who follow Jesus. What's happened with this crew? They see Jesus and they perceive something. And they go, oh, who is this? This is guy is marvelous and beautiful. He's holy. There is something about him. I have to drop everything and follow him. This is the crew that hears Jesus and they begin to understand, right? And they go, whoa, what is this teaching? I need to hear more. I need to learn this. I need what I am hearing. They encounter the person and the work and the teaching And the gospel of Jesus, and their hearts do what every heart was made to do, leap. And they drop it all, and they follow Jesus. And so the parables serve to confirm their hearts as well, right? They don't walk away from Jesus scratching their heads. They don't walk away from Jesus shaking their heads. What do they do? The ones whose hearts are ready. They press in. They stick around. They say, Jesus, you have the words of life. We want in on this. What does the parable mean? What does the parable mean? We need your revelation to tell us what it means. And Jesus says what? It's to you that the secret, that the mystery, that the unveiling of the kingdom can safely be given because you will respond rightly to it. I love that. And then Jesus unpacks for them the the parable of the the meaning of the parable of the sower and the seed and the soil. He says, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the other parables if you don't understand this one? In other words, listen, you guys. I love you. This one is foundational. If you don't get this parable, none of the other ones about the kingdom of God will make sense and my whole ministry is going to be off to you. And here he connects the dots for them. He says, I am the sower, and I am sowing the word, the promise, the declaration, the gospel of God. And that gospel is going to hit all different hearts in all different ways. There are hard hearts, and the seed just bounces off, and the gospel just, they refuse it, and the enemy gladly swoops in and takes it away. There are shallow hearts, and they kind of believe the gospel, but as soon as things get rough and difficult... They give up on it right away, and there's no fruit. Then there's cluttered hearts, and they're all about the gospel, but they're just adding it to everything else in this world and their life. And as soon as the pressures and the trappings of this world come in, squeezes the gospel out, and there's no fruit. But then Jesus says, some of the gospel word actually does hit really good soil, good hearts. And when the gospel hits that, it blooms. And there is fruit. And there is a harvest of 30 and 60 and 100 fold. All right, now we are not Palestinian farmers. So I say that and you all just sit there and go, that sounds cool. Um, We completely miss the wow factor of the striking end of this parable. During family worship this week, I was trying to find a way to shake my kids to actually see the amazing promise that comes at the end of this parable. And so I said, all right, let me talk candy because 10, 8, 6, and 3-year-olds will talk candy with you all day. So I said, let's talk Halloween candy. What would a really good haul from tricking or treating be? I mean, if it was 50 degrees out on Halloween and everybody was home and your bag didn't break, what would be just a sick harvest of candy? And so, you know, Matthew's like 50 pieces and Brandon's 100 pieces that's about as big as they could think. A hundred pieces of candy. Wow. I'm like, okay, all right. Imagine if we came home with enough candy to fill a wheelbarrow. And their eyes got really wide. Wheelbarrow, whoa. That's a lot of candy right there. And I said, no, no, forget the wheelbarrow. Imagine if we did trick-or-treat and we had enough candy to fill a pickup truck i mean just the whole back of a pickup truck filled with kit kats and three musketeers and snicker bars and tootsie rolls now they were like no wow that would be crazy then i said forget the pickup truck what if we had enough candy to fill up an entire pool and I'm not talking about the four-foot rinky-dink with the ladder that's moving around. I mean the pool at the YMCA, six lanes, nine feet deep, and you could just dive into that thing, candy everywhere. So now they're just going nuts and family. That would be insane. Their heads are about to explode. That is the feel that you are supposed to get about the gospel and about the end of this parable. You told a Galilean peasant farmer that he was going to scatter some seed randomly, and some of it was going to kick up 30 and 60 and 100-fold. They would have been jacked about 10. 100 would blow their minds. That would be insane. And this is what Jesus is trying to say, trying to get us to see. Our eyes are so small and blind, we miss what's happening. The fruit that the gospel can bear is way greater than you ever would have expected. Now, this parable is true at the 10,000-foot level, right? The life of Christ was a seed, one man crucified, buried in the ground. But that one seed, that one man rose from the dead. And with that one man, millions upon millions From every tribe, every tongue, every nation throughout history are brought to life. Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand the power of God, the plan of God. The kingdom that he was announcing was huge, way bigger than anything they had in their minds. It could never be contained within Jerusalem and the four walls of Judaism, it was going to become a global, universal phenomenon. And even though everybody was rejecting him, and he seemed like one man, that nothing was taking root at all, how could one seed become something incredible? That that gospel would be like a mustard seed that becomes an incredible tree, a thousand times its size, and the fruit would be 30, 60, 100 fold. You were supposed to go, wow, when you hear that. And of course, this parable is true. Little picture, of your soul. When the gospel hits a heart, this is so cool, when the gospel hits a heart that is humble and broken and sorrowful over its sin and ready for Jesus to become Savior, Lord, and God, the work that God does is, it's astounding. Guys, the gospel changes everything and joy and life and purpose and meaning and forgiveness and peace and hope, 30, 60, 100 fold, can explode in your soul. This was true for the disciples then. This is true of the gospel word today. All right, let's bring this home. The time for speaking in parables is over. This was Jesus' deal for a specific time at the front end of his ministry. We can still learn from the parables. We're doing that today. Thank you, Father, for your grace in giving these to us. Dan and Joey will preach on parables the next two weeks, uh, so they're not passe. But we don't speak in parables ourselves. In fact, the mission of Seven Mile Road is what? It is to break things down for just north of Bostonians as plainly and simply and clearly as we possibly can. I was, I've been praying like crazy for, for Melrose because I'm meeting people near, now that we're planning a church there. And at a Little League game yesterday, I'm talking with this guy, and I ask him what he does, and he asks me what we do, and I try to explain it. And I just tell him that God has just surprisingly changed my heart, and he's forgiven my sins, and I just can't help but plan a church because I love him, and I love his people. And he stops me, and he says to me, and this never happened, so this is really cool. He says, you've got to tell me what you mean by gospel because I, I don't understand that. I'm like, what did you just ask me? Because usually you people just pat me on the head and say, go away. All right. And then then I broke out of my frozen stupor there really quick. I was like, all right, I'm stepping into this thing. What I did not say to this dude was, well, there was a farmer. And he had some seeds. And there was these birds. As plainly, because I'm like preaching and shaking him. I'm like, there's a God and he is infinitely glorious and good and beautiful and he created us in his image we we reflect him we're supposed to know him and be known by him but we have fallen so short from that glory me especially that i can't be in communion with god because of my sin because he's holy but he loves me so incredibly much that he sends his son god comes in the flesh and he lives the life I was supposed to live, and he dies this horrible death on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins, and then he rises again so that I can live, and he changes everything about my future and my present. That's the gospel. Like I tried to say it as plainly as I possibly could to him. But in the same way that their response to the parables in this text revealed the state of their souls, That guy's response, and my response, and your response to the plain and simple gospel reveals the state of our souls. So if you hear the gospel, and you are responding like the crowds, and you're just kind of shrugging your shoulders, "Ah, I don't get it, no big deal, whatever, what time's the game? Something's wrong. Something is wrong. Your ears are not hearing. Your eyes are not seeing. If you are hearing the word of the gospel, and you are responding like Jesus' opponents, and you're shaking your head, and you're calling it ridiculous, and you're fighting against it, something's wrong with the state of your soul. You're not hearing right. You're not seeing straight. Man, if you're sitting here listening to me this morning, and there's nothing in your heart going, yes, yes. I get it. Jesus is beautiful. My sin is serious. The cross was necessary. The gospel can change everything. Listen to me. Something is wrong with your heart. Now that's all of us before grace. All of us can't see straight, can't hear straight, don't respond right. If you're not hearing and you're not seeing and you're not perceiving, please turn from that unbelief and that's sin. If there are idols that you have given yourself over to that are making you blind and deaf, throw them down today and chase Jesus. Looks like these disciples. Follow Jesus. I'm going to be with you and near you because I need this. My heart needs the gospel because I need the 30 and the 60 and 100-fold harvest. So if your heart is so hard that the gospel just bounces off, Just tell God, I need a new heart. If your heart is so hard that it just springs up and you believe for a second, but as soon as tough times come, you just fall away. Tell God, I need a new heart. The soil's not good in here. If the gospel takes root and you kind of add it to your life, but all this other junk crowds it out, tell God, I need a new heart. The soil is not working in here. Give me grace your gospel should be exploding in my heart and I promise you that as God changes your heart he will do things in you that will stun you and the fruit of joy and life and peace and hope will be so much that you will struggle to explain it to people this is the grace that God intends to give to you so I'm going to pray for you I'm going to pray for our mission that God in his grace would cause some ears to hear and some eyes to see and some hearts to believe and that this harvest would come and be known. Father, in our natural state, we're just in a stupor and you don't look beautiful to us and our sin doesn't look so bad and the gospel doesn't sound so great. But when you change our hearts, man, everything changes. And so I pray for good soil in this room. I pray if there's idols that we would smash them, and throw them down. I pray if there's uh, clutteredness in our hearts that we would clean them out. I pray that if there is shallowness to our hearts that we would beg you for the, the grace to go deep. And I pray for this guy that I talked to yesterday, for us in this room, for Melrose and Malden and Wakefield, that you would see fit not just to harden people, but to cause a harvest of grace to explode that we will be talking about in our old age at 7 Mile Road, and that we will be rejoicing in with you in this insanely huge kingdom forever. Hear my prayer. Don't miss it, I pray. Amen.